Conversations on the Arts. I'm Yuri Krieger. I am delighted to have as my guest today Colin Westerbeck, the director of the California Museum of Photography at the University of California, Riverside. After moving to Los Angeles in 2003, he wrote a weekly column on photography for the Los Angeles Times and taught photographic history at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as the University of Southern California. From 1986 until 2003, he was curator of photography at the Art Institute of Chicago. Among his publications are Bystander, A History of Street Photography, and Irving Penn, A Career in Photography. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. So this is a new position for you. Um, can you tell us how that came about? Sure. Yeah, I was a curator for uh, 17 years at the Art Institute of Chicago, and since moving to Los Angeles, um, I have been doing a fair amount of writing and teaching, but no curating. I had had only uh, one or two projects left over from Chicago, an exhibition of the photography of James Vanderzee, the Harlem portraitist uh, that I was doing for the Art Institute when I left, and that I completed from California. And I also was commissioned to do um, a really very difficult exhibition of photographs of lynchings. Uh, there's a collector in uh, Atlanta who has uh, collected uh, hundreds and hundreds of postcards and photographs of lynchings, not only in the South, but throughout the United States in the period from the 19th century up through the 1930s almost to World War II. Uh, and I did an exhibition of that material again for an institution in Chicago, not the Art Institute, but the Chicago Historical Society. So I thought we would just start in the beginning, since you've written widely, you've curated, you've done all kinds of different aspects, you've taught mm -hmm. photography. Mm -hmm. You had asked me about this position and why I took it. Um, uh, I uh, assumed this position just a little over a year ago, in the middle of September uh, of 2008. And uh, when they had announced that they were searching for a, a new uh, director of this museum, I applied because of the fact that I had not been doing uh, any curating uh, since I first came out here to California, and I missed it and wanted opportunities to continue to curate. They offered me uh, the position, and I took it. Since uh, after having done only two shows that were sort of left over from Chicago, since coming here a year ago, I've done five shows. So How exciting. Uh, this museum, by the way, uh, founded in 1973, was the first freestanding museum devoted exclusively to photography in the state of California. Since it opened, another one in Southern California has opened, of course, in San Diego, the Museum of Photographic Arts, which also has a very uh, full program. So how did this interest in photography begin for you? I began when I met Joel Marowitz. I was uh, I lived in New York for 20 years before uh, I went to Chicago, and uh, and indeed part of the appeal of moving to Los Angeles was a sort of manifest destiny. I lived in New York, lived in Chicago, and Los Angeles uh, I I suspected was the other really great big city uh, in America, as different as it is from Chicago and. I was living in New York in the 1970s. I had done a graduate degree, a PhD at Columbia, but not in art history and English and comparative literature. And I taught that subject at the City University of New York. When I was a graduate student, uh, 
I enormously admired the person that I wrote my dissertation under. He was the director of uh, graduate studies uh, in English at uh, Columbia University. Who is that? But I, his name is Carl Woodring. He's a romantic uh, literature scholar. I did not enjoy writing a dissertation. I'd always liked writing, uh, and especially uh, the, the spontaneous aspects and possibilities of writing. I found it uh, sort of claustrophobic to write in the kind of hedging way that one has to write a dissertation. So I started writing movie reviews, originally for a, a journal called the Manhattan Tribune. That led me to be offered an opportunity to write a weekly column on film for Commonweal Magazine. Commonweal Magazine was an extraordinary magazine. It came out of the Catholic Worker Movement, Dorothy Day and the Catholic yes, Worker yes. Movement. You know, it had, I don't know, maybe five or 6,000 readers, but in, when I started writing for it, the Berrigan, you know, Vietnam War was on, the Berrigan brothers were writing for it. It was really one of the most intelligently and aggressively anti-war uh, journals in the country and was receiving a lot of attention. The editor, when I went there, was a very bright uh, young guy named Peter Steinfels, who I think later was a religion correspondent for the New York Times. It was an exciting place to be. And uh, it was a weekly. I wrote 48 movie reviews a year. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I wound up as president of the National Society of Film Critics, thanks to Pauline Kael, as a matter of fact. Wow. But uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where I lived, was a kind of a little village. You know, if you needed to know someone, you'd meet them through an intermediary. I knew a painter who lived a couple of blocks from me. And he knew Joel Meyerowitz, and he had he was aware of my movie reviews and had been reading them. And he and his wife and my wife and I have become friends. And he said, oh, Joel Meyerowitz will like the way you write about movies. Uh, you should meet him sometime. I went over there one day. He was working in his dark room, and he said, I've got a little work to, dark, to do in the dark room, but do you know this? Take a look at this. And he handed me Robert Frank's The Americans. I said, no, I don't know that. He, he, I was sitting on the couch. He sort of dumped it on me. And he said, take a look at this while I'm in the dark room. Well, it, it's a movie. Yes. You know, I mean, it's, it's an incredible paper movie. Um, and so by the time I got through looking at that book, I thought, wow, <laughs> this is really interesting in a way that, that photography hadn't been to me before, uh, partly because of my ignorance of it. The next time I came over, I sat out on the couch and Joel dumped a stack of maybe two or three hundred of his prints on me. I said, look at these. <laughs> so he and I started talking and having dinners together and stuff like that, and out of that came Bystander, History of Street Photography, a book we decided we'd write together. And that has become the monograph on street photography. It has become a kind of a classic. You know, we just, there was no book out there really describing uniquely this particular genre. And so we did the book together, and uh, it, it's kind of taken on a life of its own, independent of either of us. We just now have signed a contract with Fiden to do yet another edition of it. Well, Little yeah. Brown did, did quite well. They, they pretty much sold out the first hardcover edition. So in 2000, they brought out a paperback with a new afterword by me. Uh, bringing it more up to date, discussing what had happened since the period in the 70s with which the original book, and 70s and 80s with which the original book ended. So they took it out of print, but when they did, the rights reverted to us and the films of the original book. So now Fiden is going to bring out yet another and when edition. That, when is that coming out? I think it will probably, to be honest, be at least a year and a half, maybe two years, during which I'm going to try and, you know, 
rewrite some parts of it. I'm not going to be extensively invasive in rewriting it, but there's going to be additions to the, to the body text as well as to the final chapters. So you open the book, Bystander, with a quote from Gary Winograd. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you open it with that quote? And what, what well, that was because Winograd had been so important to Joel and many of the things that Winograd had said, the kind of bluntness of Winograd and the aggressiveness of Winograd uh, as a personality as well as a photographer had made a big impact on Joel. They were a good match. They played off of each other. They spent, a, as you know from the book, a lot of time on the street together in the early 1960s when Joel became a photographer. Um, and so it seemed, you know, it, to make sense to pepper the book with the remarks by Winogrand in that way. And the whole discussion of the street, mm-hmm. um, can, can you elaborate on that? Because that was, I think, you mean the opening chapter especially, or just running through the whole book? Running through the whole book, the yeah. whole issue of, of, of why, he, he talks about the crowds coming, and, and that was the quote, I mean, the one mm-hmm. line, the, crowd, the crowds coming towards you and the, and the, the theater of the street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then that became, I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, that sort of became this, the narrative of the book. Right. Um, yeah, the, well, the... Um, the, the book, actually, the first chapter in the book is really about the culture of life in the street as it had evolved in France in the 19th century. Because in a way, uh, Joel and I felt from the beginning, Joel felt instinctively as a photographer, and I recognized intellectually as an historian when talking to him and then reading a lot of material on the, on the uh, subject of the early uh, years of photography, that in many ways the street makes the photographs. It's the culture of the street. It's almost as if uh, street life in Paris, the life of the flaneur, the person who's a walker in the streets, a walker through the city, who's observing things, but usually moving rather quickly and quietly, almost stealthily through the city in a certain way, and in another way showing off and being a, a kind of Beau Brummel figure, uh, a figure who's resolved in the writings of Baudelaire that really it's that personality which almost demanded the camera as an instrument. And in the hands of some of the greatest street photographers, the prime example would be Henri Cartier-Bresson, when the cameras get small, it, it's, it's like a prosthetic advice. It's as if the person is walking through the streets and saying, wow, look at that! Only instead of just taking away a memory, they take away an image. Right, and the person doesn't know they're being photographed. Often. Sometimes they do. I mean, in Gary Winogrand's case, of course, he was very confrontational, as was Diane Arbus. Often they purposely called attention to themselves. And even in the work of Robert Frank, who operated in a much quieter way, if you look through the Americans, you'll see that many times, sometimes he has purposely shown someone that he's going to take their picture in order to get a reaction from them. And at other times, even when he's working in a much more candid way, there's often someone in the crowd who's, who's noticed that he's there and kind of looked at him in a, in a, uh, a challenging or, or disquieted uh, manner. Uh, Cartier-Bresson had uh, a remarkable ability to be right in the midst of people and be totally invisible. I, I once, uh, in the 1970s, when I was first interested in this, and Joel and I were beginning our research, 
we had a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities that took us to Paris together to do research in some of the archives there and to spend time with various photographers, many of whom he already knew and who knew his work. The fact that I was working with him gave me entree to lots of people who as a scholar, I would, you know, they would have said, well, who are you? But one of them was, was Cartier-Bresson. We went out walking with Cartier-Bresson and Kudelka and some other Magnum photographers one day. And Cartier-Bresson had a camera in his hands. Uh, he wasn't really photographing anymore. He was spending much more time drawing. But at one point, we were walking along, and we got to a corner. We were in a little group. And I looked around, and Cartier-Bresson had vanished. And Kudelka said, oh, uh, Henri is busy. We'll sit here. And we went into a little cafe on that corner and waited. And 20 minutes later, he showed up again, having taken a bunch of pictures of whatever, something that attracted his attention. He was totally invisible. I mean, I was walking down the street with him, and he disappeared. And when I looked around and noticed it, I couldn't find him. <laughs> he saw the image. Yeah, whatever it was he was after. I never saw the picture. And I, I'm not sure he ever processed the picture. But he still took photographs. He was almost, the way he handled the Leica, he, even in his 70s at that point, he was very high energy. You know, he was a, a bundle of impulses and nerves and observations and energy. Um, and, uh, and he needed something to do with his hands. So he would have this camera like this. Joel told the story that's in the book, as I recall, of, um, I think it was Cartier-Bresson, had a way that he would wrap the camera strap around his wrist. And if he got into a difficult situation, Joel either saw this happen or it was in a film about Cartier-Bresson that he saw. Um, I hope I'm remembering this correctly. He, if he got into a difficult situation where suddenly people got angry, someone got angry that he was photographed, Cartier, if the person came at him physically, Cartier-Bresson would take the camera and throw it at the person. And the person would recoil, and so would the camera come right back into his hand because he had the strap wrapped around his wrist, and then he'd be gone. When I first started thinking about you know, doing this interview with you, I did, because I started you know, reading Bystander, this book that you um, had done with Firewoods, um, I thought you were more interested in, in documentary, you know, the mm -hmm. subject of documentary. And then I, then, as I continue to explore your writings, I see, no, it's not the case, because there's Irving Penn, for example, um, and there's Graciela Itabide, mm -hmm. and, and each of these are other aspects of photography. Mm -hmm. And also, the one that you did, the Art Institute of Chicago, Yashihiro Ishimoto, yes. which is, by the way, an amazing, yeah. amazing guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about the, that, that the Ishimoto project? Yes. Well, uh, a couple of things about Penn and Ishimoto and the interest I've had over the years. I mean, I, I have, as I say, I have no degree in art history. When I started out to be a curator, I, I originally went to Chicago to teach uh, photographic history at the School of the Art Institute. Uh, I was not in the museum. And the reason I was hired, I was hired over the summer one year because the person who had been teaching it had just quit and walked off. And they were in a desperate situation and I was just sort of standing there and they said, do you want to teach this? And I said, sure. And then I was offered a curatorship a couple of years later. And then I said, what does a curator do? I didn't have any idea. So I was open to everything in photography. You know, I, had, I didn't have any predisposition. 
In the case of Ishimoto at the Art Institute, uh, I mean, a big part of being a curator and feeding a collection, and the Art Institute's collection was, of course, a considerable one. It's one of the great photographic collections in the country. What you pursue has a lot to do with what opportunities either present themselves or can be developed by you. I had, uh, I was aware that Irving Penn, who was at that point already in, well into his 70s, that Penn was thinking ahead to placing his archive someplace where it would be accessible to scholars and so forth after he was gone. So I went and introduced myself to Penn, you know, as someone who was a curator at the Art Institute of Chicago. I had the standing to just, you know, send him my card or call up and say, I'm coming to New York. Uh, would Mr. Penn be willing to talk to me a bit? I suggested to him that we would be interested in his archive, and it took a number of years to develop that project, but that's how it came about. It started because it was an opportunity to bring not only the work, but really the papers and the whole uh, documentation of the career in all its forms of a major American photographer to the Art Institute. I knew there was an opportunity to feed the museum there, and then out of that, you know, I became, I guess, I'd have to be considered one of the, you know, most knowledgeable people about his career because I spent a number of years working on it. And, and can you tell us a little bit about that, the, that process of working with Irving Penn and, and, and his, the actual right. work itself? Yeah, I mean, we, we very early on worked out a kind of agreement. He offered to give us a donation that began as, a, it was a hundred prints was what he offered us, of our choosing if we would take not not only the prints but his papers and his you know and take in perpetuity and organize and make available to the public the record of his career, uh, Jim Wood, who was the director of the Art Institute at that time, is now the director of the Getty Trust, um, was very involved in the project. He's always loved photography, had done photographic exhibitions before he became a museum director. So he was involved, and it evolved over a period of time. It resulted in the exhibition, Irving Penn, A Career in Photography, which toured Europe and went to Japan and all over the United States and so forth. Um, and uh, the, the relationship with Penn went on about maybe a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, and I continued even after I left the Art Institute, as did Jim. When we'd go to New York, we'd call the studio and say, uh, if Irving is available, I'm going to be here such and such days. And I would go and see him. Um, and we all became not close friends, but, but professional friends, people that Irving saw socially. When I'd go to New York, um, I'd go out to dinner with Irving, usually, as well as maybe stopping by the studio. But about a year, year and a half ago, that stopped. And it was at the point at which he had decided to retire as a photographer. He quit making new imagery. This is the fashion photographer of Inktown. Or, or did he start as a fashion photographer? And then, and, and, and was it, he didn't start as a photographer. I mean, part of the, the what was the story? He started with the fashion, yeah. and then he went to Africa, and he went to, you know, I mean, he had all these different. Uh, my original sort of feeling that. Um, that this was going to be interesting, and that Penn and I, even in a certain sense, had something in common, was that, like me, he started out with no interest in photography and no particular thought of it, and then kind of backed into a career as a photographer. He was a designer. He, had, he grew up in Philadelphia, and he went to the Philadelphia Museum School of Industrial Design or something like that, where a very famous designer of that era who was working in New York, Alexei Brodovich, uh, was teaching a course 
and Penn became one of his favorite students and started bringing him to New York in the summers to intern under him and things like that. And it's a complicated story, but Penn winds up not at Harper's Bazaar where Brodovich was working, but at Condé Nast working at Vogue uh, under Alexander Lieberman, who was another European emigre with a Russian background who really revolutionized magazine design and book design even, design in general uh, in the post-war period in the United States. Um, and when Penn first worked for Lieberman, it was as a designer. He designed covers for Vogue. And after a while, uh, Lieberman noticed that every time uh, Penn uh, had to work with the photographers in the Vogue studio, he would complain that they didn't get the picture right, that they didn't realize the cover the way he'd envisioned it, and so forth. And finally, Lieberman, I mean, I'm simplifying somewhat, but not a lot. Uh, Lieberman said to him, okay, you take the picture. I mean, there's a bunch of professionals down there. They'll teach you how to handle a camera. He had already had a period traveling. His, also, his history during the war was quite complicated. He, he tried to join the military, was turned down, you know, flat feet or something, for some reason. Then decided, okay, I'm going to go off and isolate myself from this incredible historical movement. He went to Mexico to see and, and gave up the, a job he had had to, uh, he, was, he had been the advertising art director for Saks Fifth Avenue. And when Lieberman arrived as a refugee in New York, Penn offered him the job because he was leaving it to go to Mexico to try to see, spend a year to see whether he was a painter, could be a successful painter or not. And Lieberman turned him down but thanked him. And when Penn came back, having decided he couldn't be a great painter and having scraped all of the canvases, all the paint off of the canvases but kept the canvases and brought them back with him, in going to Mexico, he'd been taking photographs with a, with a handheld camera. But outside of that, he had no background in photography and no thought of photography. He'd just been taking pictures as a tourist and for documentation as he traveled by train through the United States and down to Mexico. When he comes back to New York, Lieberman is the art director of Vogue magazine and offers him a job designing covers. And then offers him, tells him, you be the photographer. So Penn started photographing. That's how it began. And then he became, my primary interest in his career was not the fashion photography, and indeed that was not his primary interest, although he's very famous in that area. But fashion photography after a while, especially after he married the most famous model in the world and she quit modeling for yeah, him, Lisa Fonsegreves. She was the first supermodel. She was in the cover of Time magazine. She was so famous. Um, and he married her in 1950, and after that she retired from modeling, and, and they had a son, and, you know, and she uh, also was an artist, a sculptor, and, uh, and pursued that career. Anyway, he, he eventually, in the, in the mid-1960s, they brought in uh, Dick Avedon to do fashion at Vogue uh, for yeah. the first time. And first Irving was really devastated by that, but my feeling is that it happened partly because Lieberman saw that that especially in the 60s, that Penn was out of sync with that moment in the history of fashion, and that he was bored with fashion photography. When did he do that? Well, what happened, uh, what, the result, I mean, Penn was, was at first quite devastated, as he admitted to me, because, uh, I mean, now his chief rival was being brought in to take over a big part of his business at Vogue, and he thought he would lose, you know, a lot of uh, assignments for Vogue which concerned him. 
but what happened was that Lieberman, who probably had this in the back of his mind all along, began sending Penn on these ethnographic trips to Africa and to Asia and Nepal and New Guinea and all kinds of places. Yeah. And over a very quickly, a short period of time, Penn's editorial pages went up from 100 to about 200 pages a year. So it turned out to be great. It, was, it really was liberating for him. But to go back to the original question about was he a fashion photographer, yes, at first that was the most important genre he worked in. But from the beginning, I think what interested him more and what he continued to do with enormous flair throughout his career was the portraiture, celebrity portraiture for Vogue. The fashion came and went. He had a really hot period in the late 40s, early 50s when he was photographing the woman whom he married. And then through the rest of the 50s, certainly did, you know, iconic fashion images on and off throughout that like time, even in the 60s. What, what would you consider as iconic fashion images? Well, one of, the, one of the ones that I really love is, and it's quite famous, is a picture of his wife in this incredible checked dress, a, a, a dress that has big window pane black and white checks on it. And she's got a hat on and she's sitting in this chair smoking a cigarette, or she has a cigarette in her hand anyway. And it's just the most elegant picture of the most beautiful woman in the most incredible dress. And the truth is that he and Lisa had bought that dress off of a rack on Avenue A for 20 bucks. It was, he said, the worst tailored dress he'd ever seen in his life. All the seams were puckered and stuff like that. And they made a game, just for the hell of it, out of seeing whether they could make an elegant photograph out of this ugly dress. And boy, they did it too. Yes. He did it too. But, he, but in the 60s even, he did some fashion work that was uh, remarkable. And at the very last phase of his career, after he met Issei Miyake, he did, I think, the greatest fashion photography he'd ever done for Miyake. Basically what Penn did was to, to use a model as an armature on which to hang Miyake's clothes so that you would see them as sculpture. And indeed, I think he's right. I think Issey Miyake is one of the most important sculptors of the late 20th century. No question about it. And Penn's photographs made Miyake himself realize that. Miyake wrote an essay for our catalog uh, at the Art Institute in which he talked about how Penn, show, quote, shows me what I do. It was an amazing relationship. Um, the way that he would have, what is it, a background sort of screen I mean, mm -hmm. he would go into like a village, or I mean, it's, the same, it's almost like a right. photographic device. It was, having it wasn't just a device; it, it was, was a studio, a whole studio. He created that a he studio, yeah. exactly. So, he, so in other words, these were right. studio, these were studio right. photographs right. made that, in the middle. The model, of, right? Made behind it would be a, a white screen, and um, the same thing would happen. Well, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a white screen in that studio, but he, he had designed, this is classic pen, incredible preparation, planning ahead, every single thing thought out before you begin. He designed this portable studio that could be broken down and packed into a truck and taken anywhere. And he photographed Bedouins and Berbers in the, in the Transatlas in Morocco in the desert in the pre-Sahara. Uh, in Nepal. What kind of screen did he put up for them? For well, the, the, the back wall of this little tent-like studio was the, was, became, in effect, the no-scene, the neutral ground on which the photograph was made. And these were 
photographs, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, it, as he himself readily admits, uh, there was nothing anthropologically accurate about them. He would pose them often in ways. And there, there's, a, for instance, the example I often have used in a lecture is there's a quite remarkable portrait of a Moroccan man and a veiled woman sitting next to him. Uh, in a photograph, he's wearing a white robe and she's all dressed completely in black with her face covered and so forth. And Penn readily admitted that these two people were of completely different social classes and would never have been seated like that together in Moroccan society in their real life. But he put them together in the photograph. And it's a remarkable photograph. But he doesn't pretend that the stuff is all ethnography in any documentary sense. Is he using certain kind of cameras? Is he using... Um, he, a different kind of a camera than he, for, I think for all of those he used a, a, a Roloflex. There were two cameras basically with which he worked. One was the 8 by 10 inch view camera on a tripod or sometimes 4 by 5 inch. Right. Set up on a tripod, wooden brass bound, you know, the classic 19th century camera that's continued to be used, you know, through much of the 20th century by studio photographers. Um, and, he, and also landscape photographers who want to take a picture of something that's really sitting still will cart a camera of that size out of the landscape. Right. right. Ansel Adams, Joel Sternfeld, etc. Meyerowitz uses one. Yes. Uh, but the other camera he used is the two and a quarter inch uh, Roloflex or Hasselblad. The, the one he used was the Roloflex, um, which is a camera that you can either hold at waist level and look down into the viewfinder or put on a tripod. And that's the camera he traveled with for, for the uh, ethnographic trips that he did in the, in the 70s, mostly. I see. Now, you mentioned the House of Lot, mm -hmm. and um, you recently wrote an essay for the House of Lot Award, which is the most mm -hmm. award in photography, mm -hmm. um, on the photography of Graciela Itagbide. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about her work and how it connects to this whole conversation of, sure. of the documentary versus the pose? Because yeah. I see her as a sort of, you talk about it. What, well, what is, I, mean, Graci I mean, Graciela's work, and, and again there, it was uh, through uh, 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 Rose Shoshana, who's Graciela's dealer in Los yes. Angeles, that I was first asked to participate in that project. I had done a show back in the uh, 19, early 1990s, late 1980s, I guess I did the research originally, um, called What's New Mexico City, where I met, I went down to Mexico City and met Graciela and, and scores of photographers from Mexico City and did a show at the Art Institute that had their work in it. <clears throat> but I hadn't particularly kept in touch with Graciela since then, although I'd been aware of her career, um, and our paths may have crossed a few times. But Rose came to me and said, Graciela is to be given the Hasselblad Award. Uh, would you be interested in writing the catalog essay? And I said yes. And then I also uh, gave, as a formal prepared lecture, uh, the Hasselblad Lecture when she was installed as the winner of the Hasselblad Award uh, a year ago, a little over, about a year ago, just about exactly a year ago, in fact. Um, Part of the original appeal of Graciela's work is that she's a great street photographer. And not all of that's not the only kind of photography she does, but that's a, a, an aspect of her work. It was in many ways the earliest aspect of the work. Although often she has photographed in public situations subjects that she had introduced herself to and involved herself with, especially various um, uh, aspects of the society of women in Mexico. 
uh, and in Latin culture in general. Um, so it came, you know, I, that was always uh, something that I recognized as an extraordinary part of her work. And so to go from that to an interest in some of the more intimate kinds of photography that she had done, where she really knew the subjects well and was working very closely with them, uh, and some of the landscape projects and travel projects she had done, was, you know, wasn't, didn't take a great leap for me to see how the mind that had started out being a street photographer and a certain kind of uh, uh, Mexican, in Mex various phases of Mexican culture, um, had turned into a photographer of Mexican and indeed uh, other, the culture, the life of other cultures um, with an extraordinary range of imagery. And she, she takes a lot of pictures of women and children mm -hmm. as well as herself. Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing to me was not just, the, in your essay you mentioned something about how these people are obscured. As for the, uh, the uh, intentional uh, obscuring or the obliqueness of the view that she takes, this also is a characteristic of a lot of photography. The camera is such a direct instrument. Um, its power under even the most unimaginative circumstances is so great that many photographers, I feel, uh, intentionally use it obliquely. They need to baffle its power in some way in order to control it and in order to reveal a subject from a new, a unique angle so that you see something about that subject, whether it's a human subject or a landscape or an interior or whatever it is, um, often photographing it not from the greatest vantage point but from a disadvantageous point gives a revelation of the subject that's new uh, and that's powerful in a way that a more straightforward head-on photograph might not be. And that's, that's an aspect of her aesthetic too, but not only of hers, but of many photographers, especially street photographers. I okay. wanted to talk to you about um, the current program, what mm -hmm. you're doing next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is, um, what do you have, in, first of all, what are the shows that you've done at mm -hmm. the museum? Since you've been here, what is your vision for mm -hmm. your program in the future okay. here at the, at the, okay. at the museum? At, uh, when, when I arrived uh, in, on the 15th of September uh, a year ago in 2008, uh, I said to Jonathan Green, who's the executive, he used to be the, the director of the California Museum of Photography, but now he's created a group of museum and performance and gallery spaces called Arts Block, and that's why he needs... And what is Arts Block? It's, it's, it's this museum, it's the Sweeney Gallery, which is next door, a gallery of contemporary art run by Tyler Stallings. Um, and you've noticed under construction just south of us is what will be opening within the year, the Culver Center for the Arts. It has dance spaces in it. It's going to have a movie theater in it. It's going to have a lot of high-tech facilities that artists and scholars can come and take advantage of, both from this campus and from outside. Um, so it's he, he, the whole group of the Sweeney Museum, this museum, the Culver Center, and its various parts is Arts Block. And Jonathan is running the overall uh, organization now. So he needed someone new to run this museum, which he had been the director of. And what is the history of this museum? 
This museum was founded in 1973. It was the first freestanding museum of photography in uh, California. Um, uh, it began with a collection of cameras it had, that the university had been offered. And a guy named Ed Beardsley, who was just here, he was dean of the arts or associate dean of the arts at the time. Uh, this was in 1973. Uh, he accepted and took charge of the collection of cameras and really shepherded the museum through its first stages. And he just, he just came back for a uh, private opening we had here for a, for a camera collection show that, uh, that we just put together from the David Wichire Hearst Foundation collection of cameras. So David Wichire Hearst is a, is a major collector of uh, cameras in Southern California. And uh, that he was interested in us because Outside of George Eastman House, we have the largest collection of cameras in the country. Uh, he's developed a relationship with us in which we have been able, on two occasions so far, to draw on his collection of cameras in order to mount exhibitions of our own. And this one of them opened this uh, past weekend uh, here at the, the, the um, California Museum of Photography. When I arrived uh, on the 15th of September last year, I said to Jonathan, um, uh, you know, do you have a gallery in which I could do an exhibition? Uh, why don't I, let's do an exhibition right now. So he had an opening scheduled for uh, the end of October. And I had recently been involved, again, as an essayist, uh, in a book that was a series of photographs that the photographer Jonah Frank took of Patrick Henry College, a fundamentalist Christian college that had been founded in the year 2000 and flourished throughout the Bush administration years. And she had gone and photographed the students on the campus over a period of two years. And this book was published uh, uh, by Chronicle Books uh, under the title Write. Uh, and um, I had worked on it and I said, let me do a show of Joan Frank's pictures. So on the 15th of September, we had, I had no money and no photographs had been printed and we had nothing framed. And a month later, the exhibition opened. Wow. Um, and it, it, that How was, was it received? Well, it was, well, and we did a public event here that filled the auditorium where Joan and I had a discussion about this work. And a number of people came out to Los Angeles, as well as local people and people from the university. And we've had uh, uh, other events since then that are similar. And we're going to have one next Saturday with Graham Howe. I did an exhibition uh, uh, on a group of Carlton Watkins photographs that we had called The Screen of Nature, 19th Century Photography, in the winter rotation last year. Well, we this is... Um, one of the most important... This was a very important object that was bought for us by one of our patrons uh, back in the 1980s. Um, it's a... It, the... What it is, is it's a folding screen. I would say it's late 19th century. It definitely looks, it certainly wasn't made by, but it's been influenced by Charles Rennie Mackintosh, the great architect, uh, Scottish architect of that yes. period. You can tell from the finials and the feet of this screen and so forth that it's in that genre. It's a four panel folding screen and on it are mounted 26 Carlton Watkin mammoth plate photographs. And it was bought for us at a Sotheby's auction in the 1980s by a gentleman named Meet Kibbe, who's been a very loyal patron of this museum from its earliest days. 
Um, and it hadn't been out on display in quite a while. So I wanted to get it out, and I did a show around it called The Screen of Nature. That The title was meant to indicate the way in which when people arrived in the West, when the West began to really develop in the 19th century with the arrival of the railroad and, and uh, the beginnings of, uh, of large agricultural holdings as well as ranching and so forth, um, the way in which the natural world out here was a screen on which people projected everything from their vision of California as a kind of Eden that should be left inviolate in Yosemite and places like that to the vision of geologists and railroaders that this was going to be the development boom of all time. And the interesting thing is that many of the famous photographs, including Carlton Watkins photographs, many of the Carlton Watkins photographs were made from the railroad tracks next to the car that his childhood friend of the founder of the, of the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, provided him with so that he could take photographs promoting tourism and, uh, and, and also doing geological studies for the development of mineral rights and things like that. So th this contradictory two-sided vision of nature in the West is what the show was about including the Carlton Watkins screen and a number of other mammoth plate, William Henry Jackson, uh, uh, a photographer named Froman, uh, a photographer named Haynes who made panoramic uh, photographs of California at a slightly later date. Uh, that's what, you know, uh, this sh another show that I did was about. I knew Graham Howe from the 1980s. He had asked me to write an essay on his work in the 1980s before I was even a curator. Um, because he had an exhibition. I'd been writing a lot for Art Forum on photography. Um, and Graham uh, had an exhibition at the Gallery Min in Tokyo, and he wanted me to write an essay on it. So I was aware of his work then. And then by the time I came out here, I'd sort of kept in touch, and I knew that Graham had founded this company called Curatorial Assistance, and that yeah. since then, as far as I knew, he hadn't been photographing. At least he never published or exhibited his photographs. But in fact, he had been photographing all along. It's just that he didn't promote himself as a photographer because he felt it was too much of a conflict with this company he was running, yeah. your curating exhibition. So I went to him and said, you know, look, let's do, let's do a retrospective. You've been photographing for 40 years. And he said, yes, so let's do it. I mean, what, what attracted you to Ben's photographs? Well, what attracted me to them uh, originally was uh, he was a student of Robert Heineken, this legendary teacher of photography at UCLA who educated a great many Southern California photographers, Joanne Callis, for instance, and others from that era of the 70s and 80s. And he, Graham's photography had a kind of playfulness. It was conceptual in some ways. Uh, at a time when conceptualism, which really started with people like Bruce Nauman out here in California as well in the 1970s. But it was conceptualism of a kind that was particularly playful and ironic. And, and it was about photographic seeing, about three dimensions versus two dimensions. It was about illusions and optical effects and things like that. And the major series he's done, the gridded still lifes, the color theory of work, and other things that are in the show that have that are sort of focal points of the show, uh, these intense projects, or especially in the early years, but really coming right up through the 80s, through the time that he quit exhibiting and publishing his work, but continued to photograph until recently. 
uh, he's continued to have this kind of bemused and playful approach to sometimes rather profound philosophical questions about vision and reality and how we see the world and the difference between the way humans see and the way animals see and things like that. And uh, I've always thought that it was an extremely rich vein of photography. And when I started talking to him about doing a retrospective show, I realized that it had continued with a considerable amount of continuity and coherence right through the period when he seemed to quit and give up photography. And it's just that it had become a private vocation. So we've gone public with it again. The next rotation of exhibitions I'm going to do will be the first of three shows I plan to do on the subject of water in the West. Uh, this exhibition is, uh, the first exhibition is the work by two photographers, one of whom is a professional photographer with a considerable reputation as a landscape photographer in Canada, a guy named Craig Richards. And the other one is a man named Henry Vaux, who was um, a professor, is now an emeritus professor, both at the University of California, Riverside, and at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, of uh, land use economics, uh, which includes the study of water, drought conditions, irrigation, how human beings use water in all of its forms. And they went to Spain uh, a couple of years ago and did a book on how water is used in Spain. And to make the point that the, what interested him about this project, Henry Vox's Photographs. He's an amateur completely, but nevertheless, his photographs are in the book along with Craig Richards. The first photograph is of a Spanish peasant and his grandson who are tending sheep in the Pyrenees, I think the foothills of the Pyrenees. Um, and these two people are respectively the 16th and 18th generation of descendants of Gaspar de Portola, who was the first governor general of California. And he put that first in the little book they did of this project to make that point. And we're going to do that exhibition here, plus some extraordinary other photographs that this man, Henry Vox, has made. Henry Vox's grandfather, a hundred years ago, photographed glaciers in the Canadian Rockies. And Henry Vox himself has returned recently to photograph the exact same glaciers. And you see that their miles receded from where they were 100 years ago. Wow. Uh, and we're going to do a small exhibition of those photographs at the same time. It appealed to me the idea of, of Spain, of the aridity of Spain, and then the glacial uh, subject matter, and the totally documentary approach of the one set of photographs and the more interpretive and aesthetic approach of the other, that these two together. And this is going to be a small kind of extra uh, gallery of these photographs. So this is the first of three exhibitions I'm doing on water in the West. The second will be California photographer who's here in the Riverside area. She teaches at uh, California State University, San Bernardino, named uh, Sant Calsa, who has spent 20 years photographing the Santa Ana River. And like most desert rivers, it's dry a lot of the time, but the flip side of that is flash floods, and she's photographed both. And then the third project I want to do, which is a few years off and for which I'm trying to raise grant money now, is a project with Mark Klett. Mark Klett, uh, in 1984, published a book called The Rephotographic Survey, 
or project called the Riva Photographic Survey, in which he had taken the two great 19th century surveys that included being photographic surveys of the West. One was done by the U.S. Geological Survey, a government agency. One was done by the Army Corps of Engineers and the other by the U.S. Geological Survey. And the 40th parallel and the 100th meridian were the two lines that they just they went through and mapped everything. <clears throat> took geological information on everything and photographed everything that they found following these two lines. One leads north to south, of course, and the other east to west. And Mark Klett and a group of photographers that he organized, he teaches at Arizona State University, Tempe, where he's now a university professor. Mark Klett and a team of photographers that he organized went and found, for many of these photographs made in the 19th century, the exact vantage point, the exact time of year, and even the exact time of day from which they were made, and he made a new photograph of whatever was there now, and it is astounding. Wow. So we're going to start, what I want to focus on in this Water in the West project, and the culminating exhibition I want to do, is going to focus on the Glen Canyon Dam at Lake Powell. The Glen Canyon Dam was built in the 1960s, and when the sluice gates were closed, the Glen Canyon was flooded and turned into Lake Powell. But before that happened, the most prominent color landscape photographer of that era, Western landscape photographer, Elliot Porter, photographed what was going to be buried under this, under this lake when the, when the dam's gates were closed. So we're going to start from that group of photographs. Mark and I, and we're, we're hopefully the uh, uh, writer, Rebecca Solnit, who's been involved, who's written a great deal about uh, the culture of photography, but also about California. Uh, we're going to go and look at, she's also written on Elliot Porter before. We're going to go to the Eamon Carter Museum. Are you going to find, are you going to, are you going to show some of the Elliot Porters? Or? Uh, in the final exhibition, that's a good question. I hope to, yes, but we're not well, far enough along. The Getty has some. The Getty has some, but the big cache of them is at the Eamon Carter right. Museum right. Uh, in, in, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, where there are 400 of them. And we're going to go together and start with the study of those, and they're going to be the premise from which Mark starts and evolves a project that will undoubtedly include working from documentary photography and various sources. As you know, the Glen Canyon Dam... <clears throat> is so controversial that there are two uh, utterly diametrically opposed archives devoted to it. One uh, is with the, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, which built the dam and has and documented building it and has kept an archive of it and continues to support it and claim that it's one of the greatest things that's happened. And certainly it is a transformative thing in the history of the West. But the other institute is called the Glen Canyon Institute and was founded by David Brower, among others, from the Sierra Club. And it says this dam is a disaster. This dam has done incredible ecological damage. This dam is going to collapse. And we're going to try and sort out these issues in a, you know, Start, as Mark always does, by determining a methodology that just shows you what's there and that doesn't take sides in any debates, but that tries really to find a way to document the thing that leaves the interpretation open. We're going to see where we come out with it and, and where the photography comes out with it. Yeah. That's the ultimate show that I'm hoping to do. So. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so okay. much. This has been... Okay. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.